well, deals that are consequential involve feeling enormous amounts of pressure, fear, anxiety, particularly to novices or people who are early in their career. Experience shows you can let emotion bleed into your decision-making and how you treat people, how you experience people. And with a lot of experience, you start to realize the emotion should be acknowledged, but it should not dictate. And it's okay to not do a deal. If it feels wrong, a good transaction is mutually beneficial, where it is clear through deep listening, you are solving an issue for both sides. And I learned from a, a mentor, guy admires like a guru, he loves to say, you gotta go through the process. Gotta go through the What is the process? Listening to the other side, forcing them to listen to you, trading documents, setting deadlines, only if necessary, no threats. What do you learn when people start to make threats? So unpacking the art of negotiation and the experience. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back everybody to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. We all know the importance of giving back. Our guest on this episode is someone who gives back both with his day-to-day work and when he volunteers his time to serve on seemingly endless number of boards. This is the kind of giving back most people can only aspire to, and that's just one of the many reasons I'm so excited to chat with him. Damien Duen is the founder and CEO of Lafayette Square, a model investment platform that deploys service-backed capital to local communities, independent businesses, and diverse investors. He also sits on the boards of organizations like the Vera Institute of Justice, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the Lincoln Center, and many more. Today, I'm going to talk with Damien about how Lafayette Square acts as a force for good, what he's learned over his career, and of course, the art of dealmaking. Dottie, how are you? I'm good. I read so much of your background, and we talk so many different times, and each moment I pick up something that's a little bit different. I have all this information, and I would love for you to share so much of it with uh, all of our, our listeners today because you've just, you have been a Pathfinder and you continue to be that Pathfinder in so many different respects. And I appreciate that. So f- for those that are listening, as we continue down this journey, you know, as the founder of Lafayette Square, tell everybody about how the organization truly came to be. Sure. I'm happy to do it. And I have to begin by just giving a reference to the fact that you and I are a couple of black men from the DMV getting to do stuff together. How exciting is that? <laughs> right? <laughs> People, people need to understand that. People need to understand that. Working well together, spending time together, on the coast together, making waves together. Impact is important, but it's, you know, impact by yourself is, it's just like such a small, small piece. But like together, you can take such a, a bigger piece, a bigger opportunity. And I think that is so true. But DC is a character in our stories. Obviously, you went off to college and had great success, and then you had a professional career. But DC was a part of that. And I would say my experience was very much the same. I think we were born in a place that has some peculiar features that are really positive and good, especially for young Black kids. You can be in the seat of federal government. You can spend time with bus drivers, lawyers, doctors, entrepreneurs, public servants, athletes in a racially diverse, religiously diverse, small Southern town. It's unusual to have all these things going at once with a bunch of educational institutions like my alma mater, Georgetown, obviously GW, University of Maryland, College Park, the list goes on all the great research institutions anchored, of course, by NIH, but countless others. It's just a hell of an ecosystem. And and that's all important because the Lafayette Square story, of course, named after a park in Washington, D.C., across from the White House and Department of Treasury, is all about 
capitalism aligned with public policy in pursuit of profits that simultaneously promote economic mobility. It's interesting, the president gave a speech in Chicago where he said, I want every American to be able to say where they're from and stay where they're from. That is Bidenomics. And I bring it up because even Republicans agree we need to drive capital to overlooked, underserved places in ruby red states like Louisiana or purple states like Virginia. Capitalism can't just go to high income places and it can't just go to the coasts. We need all 50 states participating and we need communities large and small with access to capital and services so that we can have full employment and dignity for all of our Americans who want to work. There's something in the water in DC and it's interesting when you can get out of the town and get the technical training out of Goldman Sachs or Credit Suisse combined with the public policy piece. And then it just comes down to your lived experience and your values. And I'm the son of a bus driver. My mother grew up in Southeast DC. She got her master's in Washington from GW. And uh, my parents afforded me a ton of amazing opportunities, including go going off to boarding school and having a private education that way and then coming home to Georgetown for college. It was a dream come true. My son is a rising sophomore at Georgetown. And I kid you not, the first semester is $45,000. Payments due this week. Now, my son has the luxury of not having debt. But think about how out of reach that is for your average American to pay $45,000 for one semester of college. It is startling. So if we can do things that are profitable, scalable, that also promote economic mobility and create opportunity for communities everywhere as a result of investing in good companies that pay fair wages and give appropriate benefits to their workers. I think it's a worthy cause and uh, a very pro-American cause. I like what you said uh, earlier when you're talking about when Biden said, you know, you want people to, to kind of be able to say where they're from and also stay where they're from. I think that's, I think that's interesting. In my world, I've kind of taken this unique route which has afforded me some, I would say, privilege through the NFL. And I've been in and lived in different cities and I've seen the, the value of New York, but I've also seen the impact of the Midwest. And, and I've also seen sort of like the challenge of in between, that's Philadelphia for everybody's <laughs> edification. Uh, but, you know, coming back to the, to the DC area, you highlighted so many different pieces of this amazing puzzle and one thing that you said that I that I'm sure nobody even thinks about the Maryland we're in the South proper, <laughs> you know, proper. You said the, you said this you said the South and most people were like did, did David just really call Maryland DC the Correct. South that's true right and so there's a different narrative that goes with that when people think about the South versus the North and there's a lot of politics there's a lot of socioeconomic challenge that's built into that overall on narrative. And you just encapsulated it in, in such a fantastic way. While you were walking the streets of Washington, D.C., you know, when you saw Lafayette Square or when you looked at it from a bird's eye view on Google, Google Maps, I'm sure there was intention. I mean, how did you know to kind of piece those two parts together when you see the Treasury and you see the White House? Was there some type of visual image or some type of reflection from days of being on the bus and watching your family find its way through Southeast. And for those that don't know, Southeast back in the day is not the Southeast of today. It's a completely different time. So when you look down from above or when you walked out to Lafayette Square, what were some of the parts that made the piece whole? I think we have to claim our inheritance. And coming home metaphorically makes incredible amounts of sense not just for black people, but I would say for working class people. These institutions were built and funded by our families, bus drivers, school teachers, nurses, enlisted people. So to me, when you want to have a conversation about place, not race, when you want to have a conversation about opportunity and economic mobility, 
it makes sense that you find your way home first, align with the institutions and the values of home, and then grow with no caps. I think it's fascinating how decision makers in in Washington, D.C., and I'm talking not just political appointees, but career government workers, they they often have a lot of mistrust toward Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, not to pick on the big guys, but Wall Street and financial institutions in general have earned a bad reputation in D.C. as looking to exploit loopholes, take advantage of tax breaks, abuse resources that have been created by the federal government and the taxpayer. So just a very common sense notion of doing the right thing and being transparent, living within the four corners of a document, it actually is very attractive to people here at home because we're so used to people coming and going. So it was important that we send a message. We believe in public-private partnership. We believe in aligning with the values of the American people. And I think our values are encapsulated in legislation that was hotly debated. I'll, I'll give you some basic examples. In 1958, the Investment Act was approved. It came during a time when Congress was looking to promote job creation for small, medium-sized businesses and the workers that they would employ. It was about jobs. In 1977, the Community Reinvestment Act was created. Among its many purposes was to drive capital to low, moderate income places. And then in 1980, um, another piece of legislation was passed, the Incentive Act, which, among other things, explicitly promoted providing managerial assistance to small, medium-sized businesses so they could do a better job in the hiring and training of people in the places that were overlooked and underserved. So there are these ties that bind. Place matters. Jobs matter. Services matter. Capital matters. This stuff was litigated before we were born. So the question is, while we have power and time on our side, are we using our access to the investing class to meet the moment, honoring the intentions of those original laws? As you've laid this out, I hope everybody that's listening is writing these notes down (laughs) because you know, it's like, if you just don't know your past, you know, or your history, you're deemed to repeat it, right? You're reading the newspaper, you're reading the tea leaves, you're, you're reading the internet, you're talking to family and friends, you're gathering insights. I mean, I don't know how you put everything into one day. The way that I would only rationalize it is it's something that you just are so committed to and that you have such a conviction around that it's not something that it makes you tired. It's something that inspires and something that gives you energy because it's something that you must, right? And that's the only way that institutions like Lafayette Square can be created and and be endowed, so to speak, so that others can uh, set up uh, similar shops and affect, you know, w- where on one side, you, you might only be able to work with just taking geographically a north northeastern component, someone needs to take the southwest component. Someone needs to take the southeast. But collective work needs to be inspired, and that's by you. So, yeah, I don't know how you're how you put everything in your day to day, but I know because your conviction, you do it regardless. So it seems like Lafayette Square, you all are doing some amazing things and continuing to rise and build. So, as a CEO, what's what's your day to day like? Well, we have a morning call at 9 a.m. three days a week uh, where our 50-plus professionals spread around the country uh, come together. We talk about every aspect of the business. Think about 18 states converging on that morning call. Uh, We work really hard to be connected. And so I like to start days with those team meetings. I travel a lot. And so my schedule tends to be 
couple of Zoom calls, team meetings, uh, Microsoft Teams, and then um, yeah, I'm running through airports or having a lot of meals. But when you when you break it down, the job's actually very simple: raise money, invest money. And as CEO, I have to think deeply about the asset side of our balance sheet, the liability side of the balance sheet, and how to properly risk manage both sides while supervising colleagues spread around the country. So we have a very strong human capital management function. Uh, interestingly, the HR lady who recruited me when I was a 21-year-old at Georgetown to Solomon Brothers, she's the chief people officer at Lafayette Square today. Uh, so we have a long history and a lot of trust in that discipline. And my time is is very neatly organized and I've also been very structured in how my direct reports feed in, broke the business into four segments, investments, analytics, services, and governance. And so I have division heads in each of those four buckets and I spend time with them uh, in a very organized fashion. So I get my sleep, but it's definitely intense, long days and long weeks. Switching to like entrepreneurs, you mentioned before, how do you have to you know, get into the minds of the entrepreneur. It's not easy. What's maybe your your favorite favorite part of that? Or what's your favorite strategy that allows you to sort of get your arms around the entrepreneurs and help them through a lot of the efforts with Lafayette Square to kind of get to their end goal and see the same level of conviction that you have as they should with their business too? I'll tell you three things that uh, you probably wouldn't expect to hear from me. Number one, Entrepreneurs like being around entrepreneurs. So I got a lot better at this job when I left Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse and started working on my own and I had to pay all the bills myself. The pheromones, the coloration, the teeth, everything changes when it is on you. When there's no prefix, there's no suffix, it is you and you have to earn trust. It is is about human beings, character, values. That sets up the, the next point, which is entrepreneurs respect people who carry water. What are you good at? What do you do? With or without me involved, what do you do? And being able to display that, it is attractive and inspiring and builds credibility. Entrepreneurs usually reconcile with this, this third point, um, which I, I learned you know, 15 years ago, most people don't know what a business is. So that, that, sounds, that sounds provocative. You know, a business is something you can sell or something that can operate without you being present. So when you're sitting with an entrepreneur, the entrepreneur is already wrestling with this notion of what is my team? What is my succession plan? Who does stuff around here when I'm not watching? What culture have I built? And in the end, what's my way out? Who would buy this? And what are they buying? Are they buying me or are they buying my business? Because there's this entrepreneurial trap of, are you doing so much you're indispensable to the business and no one else is carrying water and, and doing the stuff? You start to pull these pieces together there's so many fun, interesting doors that can open to you, but A, you gotta live and die with being an entrepreneur yourself. Two, you have to actually be good at something and display it. And third, you have to have the ability to very quickly hone in on the dynamic of, is it a business or is the entrepreneur selling their time? There's a world of difference. If you're selling your time, it's not a business. You're just selling your time. If you are selling culture and system and there's excellence and there's customer satisfaction you're inspired to grow and scale that and ultimately find a way to get paid for it so you can walk away but still leave behind an institution that you're proud of so i love being around entrepreneurs who really are focused on institution building not just flipping cash flows so they can go buy a bigger house Plenty of those people too. I don't begrudge them. I just find them less inspiring. So I'm sure there's plenty of advice that you give to entrepreneurs. Is there something in particular that you always leave them with or that you always lead them with? 
Like at our best, we listen. So actually, I analogize my role as an investor to investigative journalism. So a lot of questions and a lot of listening and a lot of research. At our best, we're helping entrepreneurs do what they already wanted to do. We're there at critical times in their journey where they need capital and services. My vision for the future is one in which it's more than the money. It is our balance sheet combined with our capability to go deep on what's happening with their labor pool and their employee benefits and how to shore up and improve the financial safety and security of workers because it's a risk factor for my financial investment in their business. So that leaves me sort of fighting a battle on two fronts, having to educate the world that labor challenges are a risk factor that are not discussed as much as they should and are not understood as as much as, as they should be understood. Then the other piece is, of course, getting entrepreneurs to recognize uh, they can get this type of advice from a guy with a balance sheet, not just an HR expert. You know, I'd love having alignment of interest and real partnership with these business owners and collaborating on ways to actually make their workforce better because it makes my investment better and it makes the community better. And tracking and measuring how we did all of that, bringing new and additional benefits into the frame. For example, uh, emergency credit up to $1,000 at 0% APR. This way, employees don't have to go into their 401k or they don't have to go to a payday lender. They can get a cash advance as an employee benefit and not pay outrageous fees. Employers need to do more to help their workers get higher FICO scores so they can be on the path to home ownership faster. We don't want to have a generation of renters among that 50 million person middle market labor pool that I was describing. We need homeowners. We need to promote that type of stability. The government's not going to come in and solve all these problems for us. Private employers can do this as part of their benefits package and not because it feels good, but because it means you have workers who will be more productive and more financially secure to do the job that you paid that you paid them for in the first place. Well, you know, being a, a beneficiary of your of your advice, one of the things I always think about is like, how do I how do I pass that along? But it's also important to kind of think. You know, a lot of the advice and counsel that you give is also a part of like the history that you've come from too, right? Within any business, there's always these wins and losses, but there's usually one that you're most proud of. So what's the biggest deal-making success story to come out of Lafayette Square? Or as I was saying before, maybe the one that you're most proud of. It's such an interesting question because there's one clear and obvious answer, and it relates to our genesis. Hardest deal was the first deal, and, and that was raising sufficient capital to start the company and compete in the business where we find ourselves. In March of 2020, at the beginning of COVID, I had a, a vision for Lafayette Square, wrote a business plan, reached out to some confidants, and successfully raised $100 million by November of 2020. That first deal was the most important. And I could frame it for you. Uh, in America, there are over 4,000 banks managing $17 trillion in deposits. But interestingly, 10 banks control two-thirds, 75% of the insured deposits in this country. So it is very much an oligopoly dominated by 10 institutions. If you look at the private credit business, and specifically business development companies where I compete, you have 150 BDCs managing $280 billion. And interestingly, the top 10 BDCs once again manage about two-thirds, 75% of the money. So the cost of entry to be a scaled player with these oligarchs of capitalism, whether you're talking regulated banks or you talk unregulated private credit managers like business development companies, it actually costs tens of millions of dollars a year in operating expenses 
to even build a team and technology and the wherewithal to raise capital and be a credible peer to these oligarchs. It's interesting, right? So the most important deal I did was the first deal. And if you asked me how easy it would be to replicate that deal, if you asked me, is anybody else going to get $100 million to start an asset manager like Lafayette Square in the near future? The answer is no. Uh, so windows open, windows shut. We have a phenomenal team. I feel an incredible burden to perform as, as can be said of all of my colleagues, we feel that, that weight. But we're also very much with humility, eyes wide open. We were given a mandate and an opportunity because of our vision and it's not going to be replicated. The first deal was the hardest and the most important. And I know we talk about like Lafayette Square, but you know, your, your path didn't just like all of a sudden end up in Lafayette Square. Sure, you saw it so many different times being in Washington, D.C. And, and traveling and and being in the, you know, the DMV and understanding sort of like the power of these areas. But as I mentioned before, one of your first stops was Goldman Sachs. You talked about like you, you became a different person when you left Goldman Sachs and you left Credit Suisse, right? But you earned the Michael P. Bertara Award for Innovation. Tell people what, what that was about and how did earning that award, the Murtara Award for Innovation, how did that change the trajectory of sort of your, your pathway, if you will? I had the privilege of winning the Murtara Award when I was a young associate at Goldman. I was only a couple of years out of college. The firm gave me the opportunity to build a business. It was my idea. I'd written a business plan and pitched it to the partners. I was precocious uh, as an analyst. I think I was precocious in part because there was this, in my view, an asymmetry. They were paying me $40,000. My dad was making $40,000 as a bus driver. So in my view, I was already successful because I was making this Wall Street money back in the 90s. And I thought my downside was I would go home to DC with $40,000. I thought my dad lived great. So, you know, we were going to be, we were going to be fine. And my upside was I could, I could go big at gold. So I operated without fear or insecurity because I always had this vision of learning as much as I could and then moving on. And so I identified there was a gap in the leverage loan business where the way we borrowed money to pay for our positions was inefficient. And so I, I designed a way to get cheaper funding for Goldman's loan book. And simultaneously, I created a, a mechanism for some of Goldman's clients to also borrow money. And then the third element was designing a way to actually short sell loans as opposed to just always buying them for long positions. I thought you should be able to have short positions. All technology that existed in other markets, but had never bled its way into the leveraged loan market. And the reason it hadn't is no one had the intentions and taking the time to read all the documents and pull all the people together. So I, I built this coalition, did all the due diligence, got the thing document, got clients on board. We we're making really good money. And the firm acknowledged me as a young person with this uh, division-wide award. So what that award did for me is it really solidified my self-confidence. I could compete with anybody. The only barrier to entry was just grind, putting in the time, reading the docs, and 100% personality matters, coalition building matters, but so too does having a vision being able to articulate that vision. And frankly, it got me hooked on innovation because it, it just opened my eyes to the fact that I was never going to outdo incumbents at their stuff for a whole variety of reasons. I was going to be better off trying to lead new frontiers because it would just be better for me and it'd be a different type of competition. So what did you learn about deal-making during your time at Goldman Sachs? I learned a ton. 
you know, the Mortar Award was special to me for a lot of reasons, including it was the first instance of me being an intrapreneur at Goldman. They gave me a lot of latitude to be creative and to present new ideas. And I received a lot of encouragement from partners before the firm went public. And, and then, you know, Mike Mortar was a legend and he happened to be a Georgetown man and I'm a proud Georgetown Hoya. So it meant a lot to win an award named after Mike not too long after he passed away unexpectedly. Uh, so he was a genius and uh, one of the key innovators in the mortgage-backed securities market and to win an award that uh, acknowledged some of the things I was doing as a young professional at Goldman, it, it still means a lot to me. And uh, I love honoring Mike and his legacy. At Goldman, I learned how to write business plans. I learned how to advocate for myself. I learned how to build coalitions. I learned the power and importance of innovation and what comes next. Uh, so I've said to colleagues and friends, you know, do not try to out Blackstone Blackstone. I've even said, you know, don't try to out white boy white boys. And the undercurrent to that way of thinking is innovation is critical. You have to try to build on success and modify and tweak. But when you're competing in oligopolies, you're, you're stuck with two paths. You can try to climb to the top of the oligopoly um, which I think classically is a low probability of success. Or you can carve out a niche, build a moat around yourself, and build a new empire doing something that is adjacent but informed by what you've seen from market leaders. And I think that that really became infused in my DNA at Goldman and one of, one of the things I took from that experience. So you're making 40 grand, you get this award, and the company's probably pulling down billions. Probably pulling down trillions because of your genius. So there had to be an immediate moment where you said to yourself, like, I gotta get out of here. This is ridiculous. I'm making 40 grand and I know, because I know if you were researching how much money they could pull out by leveraging different ways and cheaper cash. Like I knew you were researching maybe what people were pulling down in terms of their salaries. Oh, I, right? I, I did. I did. I did the homework and I, I went to the You firm. were doing a comparative analysis. You're like basically saying like, you guys are, you guys are paying me. You, you guys are paying me what you, you, what you usually shell out for like one day on a vacation. <laughs> so then all of a sudden, you know, you take this and then, you know, you, you, you go become the C, you know, the co-CEO and co-founder of Brightwood Capital you know, give me the, 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 the movements between Goldman, Brightwood, and then eventually like what caused you to kind of move into this world of Lafayette Square? Sure. So, um, I was making 40 K as a first year analyst, My my last big bonus at Goldman was $600,000 as an associate, which is a lot of money for an associate. I was one of the higher paid associates that year. And uh, it was on the back of the Martar Award and the firm acknowledging that I'd made the place a lot of money. Uh, of course, I I made the firm a lot more money than I earned in my bonus, but my bonus was my bonus. And I moved over to Credit Suisse and I got lucky. You know, in, in many ways, I left Goldman too early. Um, there was plenty of upside for me left at the firm, but I was young and a little immature and wanted to get paid more faster and all the very stereotypical things. Um, I left on good terms, but I could have stayed longer than the six years I stayed. As fate would have it, I fell in with a, a, a leadership team at Credit Suisse that just invested in me and gave me tremendous opportunities very early, frankly, on the strength of my experience at Goldman. And I got paid well, I got to build a business. Uh, but of course the great financial crisis hit and all the banks wanted to get out of the type of proprietary investing that I was doing with Credit Suisse's capital. So 
Credit Suisse agreed to sell me the portfolio that I was managing for the firm. Uh, the firm even agreed to finance me purchasing the portfolio. So I borrowed money from the bank to buy my own business. 18 months later, I repaid the loan I took out from the firm and I, I wound up making three and a half times my money. So I had a, had a huge windfall in my early 30s. Um, again, you know, $40,000 felt like a lot. Basically, 10 years later, I had $13 million in my Citibank account. Stunning. Only in America. In the middle of a crisis, when people are getting fired and the world's melting down, I suddenly have eight figures after tax. Kid from D.C. I used to like going to Pizza Hut on Georgia Avenue on Fridays. You kidding me? Maybe go up to Silver Spring, go to Wheaton, Wheaton Plaza, hang out. You know, like that was joy. Who knew? And with that experience, instead of buying a car or anything crazy, I actually started an asset manager and I named it after my childhood neighborhood in D.C. And with a partner, we we grew that business to four and a half billion of assets under management. We invested over eight and a half billion dollars in over 160 companies. And we managed money for a lot of big institutions on the pension fund side in particular. I did that for 10 years. And then COVID happened. And interestingly with COVID, I just had this epiphany. I was misaligned. I needed to actually invest and manage my time in a way that aligned with my values and met the moment as I saw it. And I believe the pandemic was a once in a lifetime moment. The economy would be healing from the pandemic. Small, medium-sized businesses would be hurt. Specifically communities in overlooked underserved places would be hurt. And there's a business case for how to invest differently around these themes. As I was writing that business plan and negotiating with partners to start something new, a man I'd never met in Missouri called George Floyd was murdered. And the pandemic became a period of social unrest. So again, this, this concept of a once in a lifetime confluence of events just became so apparent uh, you remember three some three years ago, there were fires, there were protests, uh, there were a lot of tears, boardrooms, television. So my my view then and now is, capitalism can be a force for good. The business community can play a role that matches the inspiration of public policy, but it requires intention. It requires uh, risk discipline, requires good timing. And I love the timing of supporting overlooked underserved places as we have inflation and an economy that is teetering on a recession. If we get it right, there's a there's a comeback story for local places that is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I want to be a part of that comeback story for American communities. And I want to support entrepreneurs who anchor those communities with good paying jobs and skills and training and benefits for labor at scale. Um, because I think that's an inheritance that our children deserve. And it really takes me back to how I got started in this business in the first place. As I said, Lafayette Square allowed me to claim my inheritance. Doing business with my government, investing in entrepreneurs and towns that I claim that are connected to my family and that are the backbone of this country. It's exciting, energizing stuff. You have to claim your inheritance. I think that's interesting for people to sort of wrap their minds around claiming their inheritance from their government. Is there anything you know now that you would want to go back and give your younger self advice on, especially maybe when you were at Brightwood? 
yeah, there, there are, there's some key messages. Uh, patience. It's okay to be in a hurry. It's okay to want to climb a mountain faster. It's okay to be ambitious. But it is equally critical that you understand the rhythm of things and the natural order of things. And if you have goals, uh, pace yourself. And it's okay to take you know an extra night before you respond to an email. It's okay to sleep on it before you call somebody back. If it's an important conversation, it's okay to, it's okay to take your time. I think there are two benefits to, to doing so. One, uh, things reveal themselves on their own without your energy, uh, when you're patient in that way. So more information comes to you. And then secondly, it's important to distinguish action from reaction. But, you know, at root, I, I like to, I like to dictate the pace and make stuff happen. You have defensive players out here and you have offensive players. And I think in the spirit of innovation and doing something new and not trying to replicate oligarchs, I, I need to do new stuff with an offensive mindset, not a defensive protective mindset. And so there, there would have been an important nuance that I've given my younger self about understanding how to play the offensive game, but with change of speed. So to use the sports analogy, you, know, you, you want athletes who are quick, you want athletes who are fast, these are different things, but you also want athletes who understand how to manipulate pace and pick their spots for when they go into that drive. And I would have uh, studied and measured how to exercise some of those skills in my mid-30s in ways that I think from a maturity perspective and from an experience perspective, I, I had to I had to learn things and grow up. You know, in my in my forties and fifties, uh, when I get there, I just had the benefit of those those reps. That also speaks to the second lesson, which I would have for myself after the patience lesson, it would be grace. Have a lot of grace and understanding for yourself and for people around you. Uh, the reality is great business people uh, evolve over time. They don't show up the same decade after decade. They get better. They evolve. They display new skills. Uh, I think it's a, a great CEO presents differently based on where the company is, what the company needs. Uh, so even in my my journey at Lafayette Square, I, I think about how I show up as a different leader year to year because I think our business is growing so rapidly and getting so many new assets and attributes that what what the job needs changes. So the question is, am I an evolutionary CEO? Because uh, you can't always be a revolutionary CEO. I think it is important to have that that long-term vision, that long-term pace. I definitely feel more in my skin and prepared with those skills and that philosophy today than 15 years ago. Place-based investing you know, is very important to you. It's critical. It's at the core, specifically investing in underserved communities. Can you share with the audience about why it's so important and some of the ways that Lafayette Square is prioritizing that point? Of course. Yeah, I think the audience would be shocked to know that if you study the flow of capital in our system, five states get more than 50% of the investment. So we, we live in a 50-state union. It is a flawed system when California, New York, Texas, Florida, Illinois enjoy more than 50% of debt investment from the credit market. Uh, this is this is bad. If you look nationally at high income places versus low moderate income places, with the low moderate income designation being 80% of area median income and below, you'd see that over 80% of the capital flows to high income places. 
So once again, uh, we know there's amazing human capital in Wyoming, Iowa, Louisiana, Maine, and they don't seem to get the access to capital or the cost of capital that they deserve because of their geographic location. So there is a place-based bias to our capitalist system that I reject and believe presents a phenomenal investment opportunity for those who have the data science and the intention. American labor um, is in desperate need of better access to capital for their employers and better employee benefits because we know workers are living check to check, don't utilize healthcare and retirement benefits appropriately because the system is too expensive and doesn't actually meet their needs. And there, once again, is a place-based rhyme or reason to what's happening on the benefit side. Now, I'll give you a basic example. Payday lending is legal in North Carolina. So you could pay a 300% interest rate. We don't need working class people taking in $50,000 with a family paying 300% interest for small ticket loans because life happens. It just should not be. And so if we get employers to start to extend benefits like access to emergency credit at 0% interest rates for workers, it would make a huge difference. There's a there are two elephants in the room. Number one, we all know workers who are suffering in silence showing up, but not their whole selves because of financial insecurity, student loan debt, medical debt, the list goes on. This undermines productivity and makes people less effective at work. And then there's this other uh, suffering in silence that, that we all see you got 45 states on the outside looking in while all the money and attention is soaked up by California, New York, Florida, Texas, Illinois. It's unsustainable. I'm very excited about the idea of driving capital and services to these places at scale, making really good returns, actually taking less risk and using it as a jumping off point to present the data to the broader capitalist system, it is safe and attractive to invest beyond those five states. Your work already gives back to the community as you've so eloquently put, and so many of your employees and those that you work with, your partners, your team members have an, an amazing ability to contribute. When it comes to paying for, you don't stop there though. And, um, and as we kind of wind down our, our conversation, you know, just, you know, all the things that you do, Lincoln Center Board, Council Member for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, Board of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I mean, there's so many things. Chair of Board of Trustees at the Vera Institute of Justice. You mentioned George Floyd. You mentioned parts of our country being on fire. I mean, there's just so much stuff that you do. Why is it so important for you to give back and you know share something that you're either proud of or excited um, about um, when it comes to these organizations? Well, look, I've had the privilege of learning a lot in my board work. You not only get to meet amazing people and serve phenomenal institutions, but you learn a lot about our capitalist system, the relationship with the philanthropic. Uh, world and how to make structural change. And so what what's happening in medicine, healthcare, um, those learnings can bleed into the cultural arts and vice versa. Uh, so it's a privilege to be around phenomenal leaders and accomplished uh, business people, professionals across industries uh, who take their time and their treasure to support these great institutions. I am an institutionalist. I believe in the power of institutions. My family has benefited mightily from institutions that 
intervened on our behalf. I could say that about my prep school. I could say that about my college. I could say that about the banks where I've worked. Institutions have great power. But how that power is wielded and the effectiveness, it sometimes does rely upon the intervention and oversight of boards. So it's uh, it's a great privilege to be at that table. I would say the the lesson, however, is in my experience, boards have wanted uh, an authentic, independent voice and not someone who is just happy to have a seat. They've wanted to hear from uh, my demographic cohort. So what's the perspective under 50? What's the perspective as an African-American? What's the perspective as an entrepreneur? And being unapologetic and clear on that voice, that perspective is, is really important because we, we have suffered with uh, social climbers who just wanted to be in the room so they could brag about it at a cocktail party somewhere else across town as opposed to advocating for our people and advancing causes that meet the moment. What does, you know, deal-making mean to you? We, we, we think about this on the show. I don't know if you want to tell us a story about negotiations or something that you're most personally proud of, but just like the art of deal-making. If you were to surmise it in, in, in a way that's meaningful for someone to put up on their wall, what is deal-making to you? Well, look, deals that are consequential involve feeling enormous amounts of pressure, fear, anxiety, um, particularly to novices or people who are early in their career. Experience shows you can let emotion bleed into your decision-making and how you treat people or how you experience people. And with a lot of experience, you start to realize the emotion should be acknowledged, but it should not dictate. And it's okay to not do a deal if it feels wrong. A good transaction is mutually beneficial where it is clear through deep listening, you are solving an issue from both sides. And I learned from a, a mentor, guy admires like a guru, he loves to say, you gotta go through the process. Gotta go through the process. What is the process? Listening to the other side, forcing them to listen to you trading documents, setting deadlines, only if necessary, no threats. What do you learn when people start to make threats? So unpacking the art of negotiation and the experience, right? Because a lot of times when you talk about a deal, it feels transactional. I buy, you sell. For the things that matter, it's not buying a bag of skills at the corner store. <laughs> okay. And it's a statement when you can bring people to the table to sit down and have a proper negotiation because there's respect and there's an understanding that each side has leverage and each side has expectations. But did you have the patience to go through the process? So that is the lesson. It is a lesson about patience. And it's one that you can only understand if you've been in those trenches and gone through those battles. And you've been a part of the process. Oh my God, have I ever. And you've seen the process. You've experienced the process. We get the process, but it's true. Unless you've witnessed and seen the transference of that conversation, you don't know it. Yeah, so Donnie, let me, let me just go like deep and I know we're short on time, but this is important. Because now I'm speaking to like our, our brethren, people from home. They're folks who don't even know a table exists. And then if they find out a table exists, they don't know what a chair at that table really represents. They don't know what sits on the table and how it moves. 
they don't understand who occupies the seat on the other side of the table. It, like there are all these things you have to go through to be able to show up credibly and to perform once you get to the table. And one of the beautiful things that you're doing is you're providing people with the information. We have to expose people to the table, the players at the table and table manners. These things matter. These things matter. The decorum, the art of the deal, and the difference between you know, an appetizer and an entree and a mousse-bouche and that eighth course. <laughs> I think you and I have a moral and ethical obligation to do our very best to share the information. There's some kid in Montgomery County who's smart and has potential but does not have the information. There's some kid in Southeast DC in public school who's deserving of the knowledge. So I want us to leave enough breadcrumbs. Some of these cats will get put on and they're going to do a better job than you and me when they get to the table. Because we will not die at the table. That's that's the funny thing about the table. It, there's a shelf life for us. Like <laughs> Mortality is real. Um, I feel like you and I should be in a hurry. The way we spend our 50s and early 60s really matter because I don't think anybody wants to hear from you and me when we're in our 70s. So let's get it in now. So I think the table is a great reference. So with that, uh, at, at the end of the podcast, we always uh, end or I always end by asking my guest, uh, New Damien, you know, the segment called Meals and Deals. Tell us a story of your favorite deal and that celebratory meal. Could have been anywhere. Could have been any time. But something that you remember. I'll tell you two quick ones. One, I remember winning the Martara Award, getting paid a really big bonus. And I went to McDonald's with a colleague from the sales and training division at Goldman Sachs. He got paid a bunch of money that same day. And in our ignorance, we went and got McDonald's because we didn't know what else to do. So no fancy dinners. I remember getting an eight-figure wire in my checking account after having a huge liquidity event following my Credit Suisse days. And I, for lunch that day, went to a, a street meat vendor in New York. <laughs> the halal guy, <laughs> famous street meat vendor, the, the white and the red sauce. And I don't know what I was thinking. I just made all this money. I'm eating street meat. I remember supporting an entrepreneur who I've become very close to years and years ago. I, I lent him 90 million bucks. He went off and you know, bought some toys with that money, but we did a closing dinner at uh, a famous restaurant in New York City called La Bernadette in a private room. And it was my first time eating there and it was a stunning meal. The chef, Eric Repair, who owns that restaurant, just focuses on La Bernadette. He doesn't have a franchise. He he makes the experience there world-class and exquisite. And so it turned me on to that restaurant. So I've gone back in years post, and if there's something big to celebrate, there's this, for years, it was a secret dish on the menu called the egg, which would be served as a sort of pre-dessert dessert. And the egg is a brown egg where the, the top is shaved off and they fill the eggshell with a, a chocolate mousse caramel and a little sea salt and you dip your spoon into the egg and you scrape from the bottom and it's the taste of success. I used to love making that joke at La Bernadette. You get the egg, the secret off-menu dessert after a big win, it's the taste of success. Well, if we were at La Bernadette right now, I'd, I'd order or I'd ask you to order your favorite dish because I think our conversation today was just, just as much a success as some of the deals that you've done because you've shared some salient points and some gems of knowledge that I know that I'll be putting up on my board as I hope that so many other people will be doing the same. So I just want to thank you, Damien, for um, being my guest today and just sharing your exquisite knowledge with me and your understanding of the world where so many people will learn from your teachings 
and create their own institutions and in some ways partner to build the new world. And I know that's your dream and you're doing a fantastic job. So I just want to say thank you so much for being my guest on the show today. Thank you both. A special thanks again to Damien Dwin for joining us to discuss how he and Lafayette Square pay it forward. If you're enjoying the Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Donnie Jones, and this has been the Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada.